You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome everybody. This is July 30th, 2020 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. This is Meditation and Attachment deepening your practice series. And uh, I've been trying to alternate between um, the enlightenment track and the attachment track. And so I thought what I would do tonight is talk a little bit about um, how integrating those tracks actually is a useful thing to do in terms of your practice. I think that we're all householders, and so we are in the world at the same time uh, as we want to practice. A lot of the ways that monastic practices are set up is for people that are cloistered or in some way removed from the tasks of running a household or participating in a household. And so uh, the way that the practice is oriented for them is quite different. One of the things that you notice when you do insight practice is that a lot of different kinds of insights arise while you're practicing. Some could be related to work, some could be related to keeping the house, some could be of psychological importance, and then some of them could be related to the the path of liberation. In a monastic way of practicing, all insights except for the ones that are related to uh, enlightenment are, are considered unworthy of investigation and so are set aside to pursue the uh, insights related to enlightenment. When I first sat with Shinzen years ago, he said that there is an infinite uh, uh, possibility for sidetracking and that what you want to try and do is organize your practice in such a way that you can drop straight from ordinary mind into awakening. Um, Because at any point along the way, in in traversing that path, you could get sidetracked by something that would would be infinitely uh, explorable, but but not take you any closer to uh, liberation. And for decades, really, he uh, maintained that all you have to do is get enlightened, and then, once you are, all of those other things that have been uh, problems along the way will be resolved. Um, this, of course, fit very well with my early thinking about this, because I really did want enlightenment to mean that then there would be no more problems in uh, life. Um, that I think is probably one of the great, greatest disappointments of my practice. <laughs> Even though you get more and more liberated, the problems still keep coming at their usual pace. <laughs> um, one of the things that's also I think important about. Um, being a householder and maintaining a householder's life uh, is that 
it really does require that you're engaged in uh, uh, relationships with other people, uh, either through work life. Uh, there's a note in the chat, magical thinking. I don't think of it so much as magical thinking, it's just a, a deeply held preference. <laughs> Um, as a householder, in order for you to be able to practice at a level that will take you uh, deep, you have to have people around who support you. Because if you can't uh, feel, or if you're not adequately supported, then the practice becomes, in some ways, too difficult to continue. And so what most house householders do is they go deep until it gets to be too difficult and then they back off on the practice. And then when the, the ordinary uh, causes of suffering that led them to the practice in the first place resurface, they go back into the practice. So it's a kind of back and forth in that way. In order to have people around you who will support your practice, then you have to be able to make relationships with them work well enough that they're willing to do that for you. And so this, uh, I think, is one of the reasons why I think uh, using an attachment focus and understanding the nature of collaborative relationships is useful to supporting the practice in the long run. If you can put around yourself people who practice or people that are accepting of practice, uh, th those are the two places that you need to be. Um, this comes up quite a bit in my work uh, as a meditation mentor. Uh, somebody will have partnered with somebody and they want to use uh, part of the shared resources to support practice and the other person doesn't practice and actually doesn't see the value of the practice and is not really open to the idea of, of using shared resources towards supporting the practice. So, where that typically comes up is uh, you have your two weeks of <clears throat> vacation time from work and you want to spend a week of it uh, on a silent meditation retreat and your partner wants to spend it at the beach uh, and you uh, and uh, you normally uh, travel together so it's a hard negotiation um, one of the things that happens, of course, as you uh, move uh, into the, the practice, it, it changes your perspective on things. Um, so at the beginning of practice, I like to say, you need to make a decision to be a good person, which means that you need to make a decision to begin to live an ethical life. And, uh, and uh, you may have been living uh, some degree of an ethical life, but the, the, the need for, uh, to, to have a pretty clean way of being in the world is important because it, it is one of the components that allows the mind to settle so that you can actually engage in the deeper practices. And if you don't do that, the mind never really is able to settle because it's too caught up in, in the, 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 the compromises of, uh, daily life. The first uh, practice really when you come to the path is the practice of generosity. And this is a change in, in the way that you view things. Often we think of a gathering resources and gathering material support for ourselves 
and uh, we can easily get into a mind state where there isn't enough to support myself. How can I be engaged in acts of generosity? And then there's also the aspect of the giving of yourself, your time, energy, and personal resources to someone else. And when we begin to explore that piece of generosity, is it is it freely given or is it transactional where you expect something in return for the, the effort that you put out? Um, in, in our culture uh, where labor is often something that's sold, um, transactional uh, relationships around time and, and attention are, are ordinary. Um, and so how do you then come into a place of an, uh, an ethical exchange there? In uh, the traditional way of teaching the Dharma, the Dharma is offered freely and then the students uh, donate to support the teacher. But what's interesting about Dharma practice in the West is that it's next to impossible to use that model and be a full-time Dharma teacher because people are not typically generous enough that they would pay even the basics. Uh, in Buddhism, the basics are food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. And when you throw medicine in there, almost no job pays well enough to go for medicine in this culture. <laughs> How did we work that one out? Jeez. Uh, So you make this uh, intention to be generous, and then you, you take the five precepts for lay people, uh, undertake the practice to refrain from killing, to undertake the practice to refrain from uh, taking what is not freely given, to undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm through sexual expression, to undertake the practice of refraining from causing harm through speech and the uh, intention to undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm through the uh, imbibing of uh, intoxicating spirits. Um, I'd like to extend that outward. Uh, if you care to look that up, Tetnat Khan did it very well in terms of uh, relating the, the last one to all, all kinds of consumption, not just the traditional fermented beer and uh, of uh, millennia ago, uh, India. In the Metta Vipassana way of practicing, which I teach, we open up to Metta practice first because we want to begin to incline the mind toward kindness, both for ourselves and for other people. Uh, it is a shorthand for the, the Ramavahara practice, the whole spectrum, which is uh, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And all of them are meant as antidotes to different kinds of mind states that arise. Um, metta practice or loving kindness practice is the antidote for anger. Karuna or compassion practice is the antidote to cruelty. Uh, mudita or sympathetic joy practice is the um, antidote to envy and jealousy, and uh, upeka practice, equanimity practice, is an antidote to uh, 
craving, aversion, and unconsciousness. When we talk about uh, the nature of conditioning and how we begin to explore it on the enlightenment track, really the conditioning, uh, really what we're trying to look at is conditioning to see how we're conditioned and how the way that we're conditioned affects the way that we create the experience of self and world. So how do we take ultimate reality, the pure sensing experience, and convert it into conceptual reality? Uh, and uh, we do that by comparing it to the perceptual database, which is a record that we keep uh, of our conditioning. Uh, I think it's important to understand that we don't keep a record of what happens to us. We keep a record of what it means to us and that they can be wildly different. And then we create the present moment uh, out of what the present moment experience means to us in relationship to what, has, what similar experiences have meant to us in the past. Um, that process that happens in each sensing moment happens so quickly that it's almost always an experience that's unconscious. An example uh, where you could watch that process, for instance, is if you heard a sound and you didn't know what it was, and it took longer than a half a second to figure out what it was, you might notice it entering consciousness and the sound would just be a vibratory experience that's unfixated and un attached to any particular meaning but as soon as you decide what it is it becomes that thing almost instantly and it's very hard to pry them apart that solid that's the sound of a lawnmower um, around here at night it's often is that a baby crying or is that a cat and you have to listen uh, intently to be able to tell the difference between them it, it can initially appear and be very compelling as a baby crying, and then a few moments later, it can be a cat, uh, and then it can go back to being a baby. And, and what you begin to notice as you watch those kinds of things is that conceptual reality appears solid, and it uh, appears to be an accurate reflection of what's actually happening, but it isn't that. It is the thing that reflects what the history of our uh, sensing experiences, our conditioned responses is to these kinds of things. It's kind of entertaining trying to discern a baby crying from a cat crying. It's light usually, unless uh, you decide it's a baby crying and then suddenly it takes on more gravity. Um, but if you watch the play between those two, you can see the fluidity of conceptual reality shifting right in front of you, right in your experience of it in the present moment. And really, this is the thing that we want to be looking for in our meditation practice so that we can see how that happens, so that we can remove ourselves from identifying with it and believing that that's actually how it is so we can be in this place of fluidity and openness and this investigation of what's happening rather than this settling into this 
rigid, fixated place around it. How then do you investigate that is the, one of the questions in meditation. And, and depending on how you practice, uh, that each of the techniques tend to illustrate different aspects of that. And, and then as you go through a series of practices, you begin to see more clearly that, that process. It isn't that conceptual reality is bad or that we don't want to rely on it, but we want to be able to see whether it's a fairly accurate representation of what's happening or where the distortions are in terms of it. Uh, and in seeing this, of course, we can see how we create these uh, patterns in our lives, these ruts. In, in uh, Buddhism, the word is uh, samsara. And samsara really refers to the ruts in the road that the ox carts make um, uh, after the rain. And that you'll notice that because all of the cartwheels are made about the same distance apart, that as the, the, the rainy season dries and the ruts become more and more rigid, the cartwheels, as soon as you get onto the road, snap into the, the, into the ruts. And then you're just going along in the same path without... Um, can you hear the helicopter? I've lived here for a long time and um, I live in the flight path of the helicopters from police headquarters downtown. <laughs> so they have six helicopters and they go, you see them fly off and then come back. So I've thrown up a lot of pieces uh, in terms of, of practice here. The piece that's, um, I think, useful to understand um, in terms of being a householder and wanting to practice in a deep way to really have these, these uh, insights into the nature of uh, the human condition and uh, into the nature of liberation um, comes because we have the people around us who will support us in that practice. Um, and then we need to make those relationships work. And then what you'll notice is that you make relationships work much in the way that your uh, family system taught you how to make relationships work. And then that may or may not be useful. Um, and because you are a householder and you need to be able to function in the world and be supported well enough to do that, it's often useful to begin to, to look at uh, personal relationships and see how they operate for you and see if you can uh, improve them so that they actually really do support you. Uh, in secure functioning relationships, the purpose of the relationship really is to support your solo exploration so that you gather the people around you so that they can be your, your base to explore from. Uh, John Bowlby, who was the father of attachment theory, uh, coined the term secure base. Um, trying to think of the name, but I can't remember it. Or at least it's not entering the, the, the speech stream at the moment. Um, but uh, an Italian man said, 
most people don't have a secure base to explore from. Most people just have a base of various, various utilities to explore from. And so if you look at the, uh, if you begin to examine the nature of secure functioning relationships and what they need to be like in order to support you in your exploration, then you can begin to see into the nature of your conditioning in a way uh, that's very useful for your uh, uh, pursuit of uh, deep insight because you can see how you do it and then you can pull it apart in the usual way that meditation pulls things apart, except it has real gravitas to you, real meaning to you because you're engaged in these things and, and you need them to support you. And they, they really do bring up all of the stuff that uh, creates uh, the sense of self and the sense of world. Uh, Shinzen often said early on in the practice that for householders, the household is the monastery. That's where the, the material comes up that we need to explore. So one of the things about being in the world and having so many different things pull at your attention and your resources and your time is how do you make practice so engaging that it is the thing that gets the, the stuff that you need in order to pursue the practice and not get uh, not have it sidelined or, or set aside. Um, the thing about uh, a practice is that if you want to go deep, it's very likely that you're going to have to do some retreat practice. And that's very uh, time, energy, uh, uh, and resource intensive to be able to do that. Uh, and in, in our culture, because of that, most of the uh, people that are able to go on this retreat are people who are resourced enough to be able to take off work, or they have the money to pay for the retreat uh, and pay for their bills all at the same time. One of the things about the COVID period, which I think is interesting, is that uh, because people are moving more and more toward virtual retreats and, and having good experiences on them, that may be uh, something that's more open uh, for people and make it possible for people who don't necessarily have the kind of resources that are necessary to go to a residential retreat but you still have to be able to take off work. You still have to have a, a, a job uh, or a, some schooling situation or some situation that you're involved in that will allow you to go. Um, when I um, decided, uh, I don't know, I guess uh, it would have been 20 years or so ago uh, that I wanted to go on four retreats a year the only job I could get, or the only series of jobs that I could get, were not that good of jobs. Um, I um, made a calculation that it was more important to me to be able to practice and to go on the retreats, and that I would put up with a not very good job because uh, I could take off as much time as I wanted. And I, at the on the first of the month, I handed in my schedule for the month and nobody complained if every third month I took off two weeks to go on retreat. And so I did that for about five years or so. Um, 
so we all we we all have to organize that in some way so that we can uh, get the kind of practice that we want to have. But we have, um, you know, as householders, some people are married, some people have houses, some people have children, um, some people have jobs that don't really allow that kind of flexibility, and so we have to figure out how to do a practice. We talk about it often. Um, is the the child trough we call it. If you're 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 going on two retreats a year, you're sitting a lot, and then you have your first child, and then you don't go on another retreat until 18 years later <laughs> when they go to college. <laughs> In the attachment material, we really do look at the nature of how you organize relationships how you make them function. We talk about the uh, collaborative relationship uh, dynamic where really the purpose of the relationship is for each person, in, uh, each person to support the other person's exploration. And because it's this mutual exchange of support, uh, you're very well taken care of, they're very well taken care of, and you have the, the resources for your uh, exploration. Understanding that the the deep meaning of life comes from your exploration, not from the relationship, and uh, that that people's interest in you and being in the relationship is not because of some uh, performative aspect, but because of your your beingness, the, the just the the na nature of who you are. It turns out that if you explore in a deep way how to make relationships really work well, that you develop all of the skills and also most of the insights that are needed then to turn toward the uh, pursuit of uh, enlightenment or liberation. And that you can make your relationships work better, set up the base for yourself to explore from, and then uh, once that's really solid and, and available to you, move into uh, the pursuit of uh, liberation and not have lost any time in doing that because the meditation uh, basis of that exploration um, uh, was the skills training that you would need later to pursue the other. One of the aspects of Vipassana meditation, which is the, the, the practices from Theravada Buddhism, uh, that uh, develop by doing it is called mentalizing. Uh, mentalizing is actually where you're able to track the components of your experience individually and then come together. Vipassana is often translated as V uh, um, to divide and pasana to see clearly or V uh, as in to divide and, uh, and pasana to reflect backwards. That's a pr pretty apt description because consciousness does not uh, do anything but record what happens. The whole body-mind process, uh, the whole discernment process, all of that tends to be unconscious. And consciousness is just there, uh, I like to say using a computer metaphor, the printer. After the CPU and all of the data inputs have come together, after the programs have all processed and the output is sent to the printer, we're there standing at the printer waiting to see what's happened. 
out comes the result. And then there's a big flashing red veto button next to the printer that after you read the paper, if it's a really dumb idea, you can hit the veto button and stop yourself from doing it. But if you're not there at the printer to read the page, pretty much you just act. Uh, and then uh, maybe at some point later, catch up to it. So training yourself to be mindful so that you're there uh, consciously watching the process of the body-mind, take in the data and um, project outward the world. Part of that process is always, what do I do in response to the conditions of the present moment? And then there's always the collection of what happens that is then put into the database as an, as an entry. I, I talk about um, the nature of, of this experience uh, as, as um, or the nature of the human experience is a very limited version of what's actually happening uh, in this quantum mechanics uh, physical world that we live in um, with uh, what do they think? 28 dimensions or certainly more than the three or four that we're, if you think of time as a dimension. And that in each moment, what opens up in front of us uh, is all of the potentialities of that moment of which we could choose any one of them. And that that would change the directory, the direction of how we're headed and also open up a whole range of potentialities that are only available because that potentiality in the moment before was chosen. Uh, the, in Buddhism, we call that uh, conditionality, that the, the previous moment sets up the conditions for the present moment, and the present moment sets up the conditions for the next moment. One of the things that happens if, if you're not really mindfully engaged in the present moment and you haven't really explored and pulled away the distortions of that creation is that you, you don't uh, uh, register most of the potentialities that are available to you and you get more and more stuck in, in the, the ruts uh, of the cartwheels of samsara because those are the only potentialities that you recognize and so they're the only ones that you choose from. So, how do you learn to mentalize and what is exactly we're trying to mentalize? Um, the Fanagi group in London uh, developed a, a, a description of mentalizing, which I like because it's easy to describe what's happening. There are four dimensions of it. One is spontaneity and one is monitoring or control. So when you begin your, your Vipassana practice, the first thing that you're really beginning to do is to, to investigate this uh, dynamic of mentalizing. We want to be present and, uh, in, and un, uh, caught up in what's happening, um, but also don't, not inhibiting of any expression that the body-mind could generate, totally in the flow of the spontaneous process of ourselves interacting with the world. 
And at the same time, we want to be able to monitor all of that so that we can be present for the experience of the spontaneity. If you get pulled too much into the spontaneous side of things, then you lose the monitoring side of things and you're just identified with the content of what's happening and in it so much that there's no perspective on it really. You may notice this in your meditation practice just by sitting and then all of a sudden realizing that minutes have gone by and you've been lost in the flow of thought. That would be pulled into the spontaneous side. You may also have noticed in your meditation practice if you get pulled too far in the direction of control or monitoring, it inhibits the spontaneous expression all the way to the point that there's no expression. So uh, sometimes when I say bring your attention to auditory thinking space, you bring your attention there and it's just completely quiet. You take your attention away and it immediately erupts in an endless amount of chatter and then you bring your attention to it and it immediately goes quiet. So this would be the too much monitoring, too much control side of that. We want to have this dynamic balance where we're opening up and allowing the full spontaneous expression of ourselves just being and at the same time be able to continuously monitor that and, and see clearly what's happening. The second uh, dimension of it is uh, internal versus external. Um, when we practice meditation, when we turn internally into the, the sensing of ultimate reality, that pure sensing experience, that internal experience, we're turning toward the interior of things. And when we look at the, the the uh, conceptual reality that we project outward to form the world, that's the external dimension of mentalizing. I like the way that Dan Brown describes this, is that we take everything in and then we project it back out. The understanding of that is that we're not taking in from the outside what's there and then understanding it. We're taking in the raw sensing data from out there, we're processing it, and then we're projecting outward what we, what we make be there. And we can make it a lot of different ways. And we can change the way that we've made it on the fly in real time as it's moving along. Um, <clears throat> One of the metaphors that the Buddha used to describe this was the farmer who walked into the shed and in the light, uh, the dim light, he looked in the corner and he saw a cobra coiled and ready to strike. And so he took his hoe and he cut up the cobra. And then when he lit a lamp, he realized that he cut up a coil of rope and that there had been no cobra there. But in the moment of first coming in, when his eyes were used to the brightness and not the dimness, the mind interpreted the shape of the coil of the rope and created in that moment a cobra about to strike. And the body then chopped the rope into pieces in that instantaneous response to the perception of danger. In the moment of of hacking the cobra to death, 
the experience was cobra. And in the moment of lighting the candle, the experience was the regret of losing the rope that had value to you because you didn't see clearly what was happening. And this happens all of the time uh, because of the, the fluid nature of how we create things. And so we want to get into a habit of very quickly repairing when we misinterpret things and also to hold it lightly because uh, it's so easy to do. The third one is self versus other. Can you tell your experiences apart from the other person and their experiences? This can become tricky because we experience the other person uh, internally, empathetically, and uh, if we don't have really good clarity, it's hard to tell our experiences uh, from their experiences that we're both experiencing in the body. There's a reactivity between people and ourselves. We perceive somebody that changes our perception, uh, our internal perception of ourselves in response to that. They can pick that up and that changes their internal experience of you, which is then fed back to you, which changes your internal experience. And it's a very rapid back and forth. And can you keep that clear? Um, internal versus external. And then cognitive versus affective or emotional. In uh, Shinzen's uh, world, uh, see, hear, feel, uh, audio and visual is the cognitive piece and the, the felt sense of emotion in the body is the affective piece. In Western thought, of course, since Descartes uh, cleaved apart reason and emotion, uh, as if there was some virtue in having the cognitive aspect dominant and the emotional as, uh, aspect as, uh, second. Um, from an attachment point of view, of course, it's just dismissing people in power <laughs> don't feel anything that really like that approach. <laughs> and they devalue the aspects of it they can't really do. Uh, and then it's been gender, genderized. Uh, um, men are cognitive, women are emotional. This is completely untrue. And there's abundant ev evidence of it everywhere you look. Um, uh, that, and if we look at it through the attachment lens, of course, there are as many dismissing men, uh, there's as many dismissing women as there are men. And there are as many preoccupied men as there are preoccupied women. It's not divided by sex. It's, a, it's not even a useful marker. Um, you have a, an 85% chance of having the attachment strategy of your primary caregiver, which for most people is, uh, in our culture, uh, uh, women. Um, so if you have an 85% chance of having the same attachment strategy as a woman and women are all preoccupied, where did all those dismissing men come from? <laughs> so, all right. Um, let's see here. Where are these things? Somebody's looking for me. 
So what I want to do is a meditation uh, around exploring uh, the emotional aspect, which has an emphasis on the spontaneous versus the controlled and the cognitive versus the emotional. Um, and uh, we'll begin by monitoring auditory thinking space. The, I call this investigation, investigating self-generated emotions. So some of you have uh, studied with me for a while, will we'll have been through this a few times. It's, I think, uh, really important on a number of levels. It helps generate or it helps to regulate your emotional response to the present moment. And it also is very good at developing mentalizing. And the exercise itself, going through it, um, uh, pushes you in a place where you have to be able to mentalize uh, and stay in the meditation without getting pulled into the content of thinking. One of the trickiest pieces about uh, developing the capacity to mentalize is that you're often dealing with the content of thought, which is extremely sticky in terms of pulling you in to identification and then losing the meditation stance and um, just moving into a, a contemplative uh, thinking place. And then um, to begin to notice the uh, interactivity between thoughts and feelings, that feelings can generate thoughts and thoughts in response always have a component of feeling to them. Uh, any questions about that before we, we do the meditation? Being in, in psychotherapy and the, the psychologist would say that uh, allowing for more, more emotions would be helpful. Um, generally speaking, <laughs> in women, there was always like women are better at that than, than men are. Right. And uh, it seems like it's a repeating theme like someone is, or even in the recovery circles, they would say you're someone's in their head and they need to involve the body and the emotions. Right. And that almost sounds like when you talk about the mind-body concept and uh, that since emotions are a part of us or they're generated, then instead of having aversion or trying to run for them, that maybe they should be met kind of like the Buddha with uh, Mara or... Um, and learning to <laughs> learning about them and how to, to work with them, you know, to become friends with them or so. Well, I think that it's we want to be able to be uh, equanimous with all, all experiences, including emotion. One of the things that happens when we develop an afflictive relationship to emotion is that we begin to to structure uh, uh, ways of being or ways of creating conceptual reality that limit our experience of emotions so that we can be protected from them. And it becomes increasingly distorting in terms of how we create uh, conceptual reality. What, you know, some people are, are so averse to emotional experiences that they don't feel them at all in the body. Uh, and people are even more averse to that, don't allow a cognitive awareness of what their emotional experience is. They tend to have a very idealized view of it. You, you, you may have encountered people like that, but sometimes there's a very uh, Pollyanna-ish presentation where everything is a kind of pseudo-positive experience, uh, and then sometimes it's everything is going to turn out great. Um, uh, so, um, and 
because the perception of self can be so compelling and if we really make conceptual reality solid then we don't really notice that the entire emotional experience is happening it's informing the way that we make decisions about everything we're just not letting ourselves in on it so we're having all of the emotional reactions everybody else has they're just kept unconscious and so that their influence on the choices that we make is also unknown to us and so uh, we can become confusing or we can become alienated or uh, or, or um, um, that, the next word is not coming um, uh, removed from our our sense of self uh, when that happens um, so I think that it, it's really uh, useful to know that it isn't that you're not having the experiences that are emotional in nature it's that you're not allowing yourself to know that you're having them because you don't allow yourself to know that you're having them you don't allow yourself to know the influence that they're having on the way that you create the sense of self and world and also in the way that they affect what choices you make and what actions you take and so they can really screw your karma <laughs> to put it in technical terms they can really do they can really distort your your intention and then you can take an action based on that distorted intention and then you can create karma for yourself which is which is uh, potentially quite uh, difficult because you don't allow yourself the information so yes i would say it's very important to come into a place where there's no restrictions on what can come into consciousness be, uh, and also understand the bandwidth of consciousness is extremely narrow so you want all of the pertinent data pertinent data be to be passing through that that loop so that you can derail unskillful actions before they create uh, a karma um, I you I would think of karma as uh, the potentialities to choose in the next moment if you make a really unskillful choice the potentialities that unfold unfold for that are very different than if you make a skillful choice. Is that making sense? Yeah, and it also kind of reminds me of being well integrated and not having this firewall there, and having a depth a depth of understanding, not not a superficial operation. No, what that kind of brings to mind that too. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's, it's nice to have all of the data uh, and not to just really be moving through blindly. Uh, I mean, if you think of the human predicament, um, as I like to say, this is the, the, the spectrum of light, this is what we can detect. This is the spectrum of sound, this is the spectrum of sound that we can detect. This is the spectrum of temperature. This is the spectrum of temperature that we can in, in, inhabit. We, we know uh, this tiny little slice of things. Um, I'm remembering vividly this um, description, but I'm, I'm not remembering the philosopher who wrote it. He said, imagine that there was a being that existed only between the surface of the water and the air. 
a flat being. And that you would walk into the water and that they would know you as little circles of ankles and then little wider circles of calves and then a little wider circle of legs and then a single circle of torso, but then with two smaller circles of arms. And as you went in and out of the water, their perception of who you were would change quite uh, dramatically based on that. And remember the Buddha um, described that as the, the uh, or the story goes, uh, the Mahara, uh, an elephant was brought into the room and, uh, and uh, the Maharaji asked these uh, five blind men to describe the experience of the elephant. And one of them walked over and put his arms around the, the front leg of the elephant and said, an elephant is like a pole. And then one grabbed the, the, the trunk and said, an elephant is like a hose. And then one grabbed the ear and said, the elephant is like a sheet of leather. And then one of them grabbed, uh, put his hands around the side of the elephant and said, the elephant is like a wall. And one grabbed the tail and said, the elephant is like a rope. And so when you compartmentalize or limit your capacity to really experience things as they're happening, you create these very, uh, they're not inaccurate perceptions. You could e easily see how somebody holding an elephant's tail might. <laughs> Think of it. Uh, sorry. It's so funny. Um, I, it's a very off-color joke, uh, a Buddhist joke. <laughs> okay. Um, which I probably shouldn't say. Uh, that's funny. Uh, uh, George, um, your first instructions had three or four um, variabilities. Right. The thought, like we had, like one thought that was coming up versus uh, re repetitive thoughts. And what were the other um, uh, possibilities or options? Just so to bring your attention to auditory thinking space, sometimes there's no thoughts. So that's just quiet. Mm, okay. And sometimes you, you think a thought and it's just a, a single thought that comes and goes. So mm -hmm. in my meditation tonight, um, I had one off thoughts and my mind would play a tune for a couple of minutes. That's a repetitive thought and I could track in the body that it produced a very pleasant, soothing feeling in the body uh, by playing the, the tune in the mind. Um, but not all um, repetitive thoughts are skillful in that way. I would say that playing a tune in the mind that produces a soothing feeling in the body is a skillful way of regulating your emotional experience, but playing a thought that generates intense anger directed toward yourself uh, has the same regulating capacity, but it isn't skillful, and so you probably would want to stop that from happening. Uh, the question is always, why is it that uh, um, that's regulating? Um, and um, Dan and Dan Brown and Ken Wilber came up with this this sixteen stages of spiritual development. In the early stages, um, in the beginning stages, one of them is to recognize that you can regulate your experience by thinking. 
And so it's one of the, the, the skills that humans uh, have and, uh, and have developed in many ways that you take in the experience of the present moment and then you think through it as a way of uh, accepting and dealing with what, what's actually happening. Um, so one-off thoughts are often like that, but when um, Dan Siegel uses the term the window of tolerance, so you can, you because each response, the experience of the present moment has an emotional component, if that emotional component stays within the window of tolerance, then it just rolls through and we have the, the one-off thought experience of reacting. But if something happens and it exceeds the window of tolerance, then we need to regulate that experience. And most often the way that we choose to regulate it is by thinking about that whatever is happening. If you were to allow into consciousness awareness of all of these things, then you would know that there's an emotional response and reaction to the conditions of the present moment, which is, is throwing you off base and that you need to then bring some regulation strategy to it in order to balance it. If you don't allow yourself an awareness of emotion, then you don't know that what in that moment you're in the experience of a, an intense emotional experience that needs to be regulated and the body mind just does it completely and consciously. These processes are embedded, the, this type of emotional reaction is regulated by that thought process is all has been very well established in most people and so that, that happens and then you're just thinking the thought. And the thought is generating an emotional experience which pulls you out of the experience of the present moment into the, the thought content of that experience, including the emotional pieces which obscures awareness of the underlying emotional state. But because those states are so changeable, normally you don't, you don't have to do much about it. It just comes and goes. And then the mind can shut off the storyline that's regulating it return you to the present moment. So in the beginning of meditation, you may notice that your attention constantly comes and goes from the present moment. And that's that process of regulating the, the present moment through thinking. And then as you begin to train your attention, you can stay more and more in the experience of the present moment and begin to watch these things as they're happening without being scooped out of the present moment every time there's a situation or a response that exceeds your ability to be present for it. Is that all making sense in terms of the description of it? Once you're able to be in the experience of the present moment and watch the body's mind's activity of, of trying to balance itself through the process of thinking, then you can begin to evaluate whether the, the strategy that you're using is a skillful strategy or not. I was on the phone uh, this, this afternoon with somebody. They regulate uh, fear with uh, fear. And so uh, they have panic attacks because something frightens them and the mind just revs it up to an incredibly intense level to pull them out of the experience of the present moment, which is not uh, skillful. So changing that to something else would be useful. Is that all making sense in terms of this? But this is all the capacity to mentalize. You can see the flow. You can track it because you're able to monitor it. You can watch the interactivity between the cognitive processes and between 
the emotional processes. And then you can, uh, part of the aspect of monitoring and control is that you can uh, change the way that you respond so that it, that you produce a better outcome for yourself. I think that's tied into right view. It could be right view. And if, if I'm not dysregulated, this is easier to do. Uh, yeah. So sometimes we're dysregulated, but if I'm more regulated, this would be an easier task to accomplish. If, you totally. know. Well, then you wouldn't have to do it because it wouldn't be happening mostly. Um, yeah. Good. So the concept of right view, um, the, you know, right view, and uh, that's a different concept than what you're talking about, right? Well, Right view is to see things clearly, and so this would definitely fall in that place to actually be able to be present and see what's happening. And breaking it down uh, into those uh, different component pieces is part of the process of seeing what's happening. There are different aspects to right view, but that's one of them. The secular uh, mindful self-compassion movement, I think, attempts to, to integrate some of this stuff too. It's bringing up that kinder voice uh, with Kristen Neff and Chris Germer's work. It right. seems like they're doing it in their own way. Yeah. Someone else? We're just about out of time. So thank you uh, for coming. Um, I'm doing the Tuesday night beginners class in this class. Next, the next two weeks of this class will be uh, returning to the Satipatthana Sutta and doing the third and the fourth foundations of mindfulness from that. And then we'll do some uh, hard practices after that. We've uh, decided to do another virtual retreat because the experience of this virtual retreat was pretty good. And so we're gonna do a six-day retreat uh, during the week between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, and the information for the retreat is on the website. I do limit the number of people who can come to the retreat to 20, so uh, consider it. The last retreat did fill up, uh, and so we ended up closing it. Um, I am going to be doing this fall some level one classes and some uh, classes on coupling. And we are continuing with the uh, Dharma Maps class on the third Saturday of the month. So I think uh, September or October will begin with, we'll have two day longs a month going on. Um, and we are, if you're interested in the attachment material, starting a level two class uh, in the fall. We're, we have a, a, a level two class going now, and when that finishes after that, we'll start a second one for this year. Um, I offer the teachings freely, and I'm very happy that you can come and, and, and that you practice. Um, but uh, we do also ask for don or donations to support Metagroup and also myself so that we can continue with the teachings. Um, there's a link on the website with a, in the same paragraph as the description of this class if you wanted to make a donation. Any amount would be greatly appreciated. And uh, we will see you next time. Thank you. Thanks, George. Thanks. Bye. Nice to see you. Bye. <laughs> Thank you. Bye.